But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. The word of the Lord. You've seen it in the movies, and if you're like me, it has caused you to mentally switch off from the film and lose yourself in a sea of culinary fantasy. There's a prisoner. The cell he occupies might be in Victorian London, or revolutionary Paris, or ancient Greece, or the island of Alcatraz. Wherever the prisoner is, his future is bleak. Within a few hours, he will be executed. And a prison guard performs a centuries-old custom, one of kindness and solemnity. He asks the condemned man what he would like for his last meal. Now, as a piece of cinema, this is terrible because the audience instantly loses attention and thinks about what they would choose for their final meal. Just like this is a useless way to start a sermon, because from now on you're not listening to a word I say, because you're thinking, shall I have the caviar sauce or the truffle souffle with my Chateaubriand? In medieval Europe, the last meal was symbolically important. By accepting the food, the prisoner was thought to be making peace with the executioner and uh, renouncing all vengeance, including in the afterlife. So the meal kept the condemned man from returning as a ghost to haunt those involved in the execution. Everyone was strongly motivated to make this meal the most delicious the prisoner had ever tasted. More than a decade ago, a prisoner on death row in Texas requested and received two chicken fried steaks, a triple meat bacon cheeseburger, fried okra, a pound of barbecue with a half loaf of white bread, a cheese omelette with ground beef and vegetables, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, a pint of ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers. But he didn't eat any of it. And since then, Texas has no longer offered a choice of meal for the condemned. But the most moving meal requests have been by men who, with their final act on earth, have expressed in a practical way remorse 
and even repentance. Over the years, a few have chosen to have their last meals given to other people. For example, Philip Workman, who was executed in 2007, declined a meal for himself, but requested that a vegetarian pizza be given to a homeless person. Prison officials denied that request, but then homeless shelters received hundreds of pizzas donated by people who'd heard about his gesture. Why all this talk about last meals for the condemned? Because that's where we are in our lesson from Exodus. Today is part 14 of our summer sermon series from Eden to Egypt and the final episode. Actually, we should probably have named the series from Eden to Egypt and out again, because in this epilogue, the decisive moment of the Hebrew people occurs. For an unknown length of days, they have been slaves in Egypt. Their leader, Moses, has pleaded with Pharaoh on nine separate occasions to let his people go, and nine times the king has refused, sometimes actually promising to do it, but then changing his mind. This is a scene of final meals. For Hebrew, the Hebrews, it is the final meal in captivity. For the firstborn males in Egyptian families, it is the same evening as their last meal on earth. For Jesus, 1,500 years later, it becomes his last supper before the cross. And for us, the followers of Christ, three and a half thousand years later, it is our last meal before we return into the world to pursue the mission of God each week. At least it will be when we're safe to do that. This final passage in our summer sermon series is unusual. It doesn't describe a conversation or even an event. It is an instruction. God simply gives the Hebrews directions. On the 10th day of the month, every household is to sacrifice a lamb, a year old, male and without blemish. Then they are to daub its blood on the doorposts. Then they are to eat the lamb roasted with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. They are to eat with a sense of urgency, with their shoes on, ready to leave. Because this is the night when God will pass over the land of Egypt and Pharaoh will finally let God's people go. And God finishes these instructions instructions with the command that the Hebrew people shall perform this ritual every year for all generations. And of course, they have. I find myself not wanting to talk about the slaughter of animals, especially lambs, but sometimes scripture forces us to look at what's distasteful. The male sacrifice, free of blemish, 
that will save God's people. Who does that remind you of? And that is why we can't gloss over the passages in the Old Testament about sacrifices, because they point to the one perfect sacrifice that will end them all, the man without blemish who was nailed to a cross. Jesus was brought up with the annual celebration of Passover. Some of his earliest memories would have been of gathering with his large family around the table, hearing the great story of how God passed over the land of Egypt and saved the people. God grew up with the taste of lamb on his tongue and the aroma of bitter herbs in his nostrils. And by and by, in the fullness of time, he came to the shocking epiphany that this ancient story of God's rescue was actually a prophecy of his own life and death. Somewhere, maybe during his 30 years of obscurity, perhaps during the three years of his public ministry at the end of his life, Jesus came to understand that his identity was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That in some mysterious way, beyond understanding, his identity was bound up in this sacrificial lamb. Indeed, that he was the sacrificial lamb, the blemishless one who would free God's people from captivity, not to Pharaoh, but to sin and death and alienation from God. There is death all over this meal. The bitter herbs taste of bereavement and suffering, chewed, swallowed, digested. The bread made without yeast, made without life, without warmth, without taste. Have you seen yeast through a microscope? It's like the concourse of Grand Central Terminus at rush hour. But this bread doesn't contain any. They don't have time to wait for the dough to rise. This is the moment they've got to be ready. They have to eat, but be prepared at any moment to stand up leave their homes and walk for their lives. This meal is the most somber because there's death all over it, the most restless because it's covered in urgency, and it's the most celebratory because despite the death and the urgency, it is the source of escape. It's the prelude to liberation. We talk of celebrating Holy Communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, take whichever phrase you prefer. In our tradition, we always try and usually succeed in reproducing the solemnity of this meal. We remind ourselves each time that we take communion of the death of Christ, the Lamb without blemish, whose sacrifice sets us free. And we eat it with urgency because we don't live in this building like you need to be told that 
after six months of social distancing. We live in the world. And so, yes, we receive the sacrament with solemnity and even with a tinge of sadness as we remember how it was our sins that took the Lamb of God to the cross. But we eat with the sense that we need to go out there doing God's work, loving God's world, serving God's people. That's what it's all about. The sacraments are our equipping, our resourcing. As we eat and drink, we are being refitted for mission. You may have heard that the Episcopal Church is beginning to revise the Book of Common Prayer, which it hasn't done for over 40 years. And in that time, society has moved, as has our understanding of our mission. So in principle, I'm comfortable with revision as long as we don't undermine our central beliefs and practices. But there's one thing I hope they change. One element of the liturgy that I find not just unhelpful, but actually harmful. It's the rubrics at the end of the communion service. The instructions say, the deacon or celebrant dismisses them with these words. And so we refer to this as the dismissal. Well, many of you will have noticed that in our locally produced bulletin at St. Paul's, we don't use the word dismissal because dismissal is a bit... It makes me think of getting a red card in soccer or of being given out in cricket or baseball or not much better, leaving the witness box in court or leaving the presence of royalty after an audience with Her Majesty. None of these are helpful images when it comes to ending a worship service. We are not in court, we are in church. We are not bowing and scraping before a proud monarch, we are feasting at the Lord's table. So in our bulletins, we try to emphasize that our worship in this place may have now come to an end, but the job of mission begins. We send you into God's world. You are ambassadors for the king. Important diplomats going into society where you are to serve the interests of our monarch, but with respect honour, dignity and love for those among whom we live and move. So if anybody asks for my input into drafting the new prayer book, and I see no good reason why they should, then I know what I'm going to say. Get rid of the rubric about dismissing God's people and replace it with a call to go out and do mission. Oh yes, and even more important than that, I'm going to tell them that we really need a Eucharistic prayer that is usable with children. 
And so we've made it. What a journey. 14 weeks from Eden to Egypt, then back out again. I've enjoyed every minute of it, and I hope you have gained something from these readings and sermons. Here's what I'm taking away. It's the constant theme running through these stories, and it is so apt for our summer of COVID. Hear the word of the Lord. God has a plan. We can't see what it is, but all our experiences are working together for good, ours and the world's. Hold on to that promise. Go on in faith and see what God will do for you and with this parish we love. Amen.